0: If you're looking for conversations about books and science fiction and insight into the minds of writers, you've come to the right place. This is New Books in Science Fiction. I'm your host, Rob Wolf, with the "Alcahest is Thicker Than Water episode. My guest today is someone who's won or been nominated for so many awards, I'm sure I'd get it wrong if I tried to list them all, so I'll name just a few. She won the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer in 2010. She won a Nebula Award and a Hugo Award in 2016 for Best Novella. She's twice won Hugos for Best Fancast. And I think this kind of says it all. In 2013, she received a record five Hugo nominations. I'm talking about none other than Seanan McGuire, the author of 36 novels, including two released this year, one of which we're talking about today. Middle Game, which she describes on her website as a dark modern fantasy with alchemical undertones. And she's Skyping with me now from her home in Seattle. It's great to have you on the pod.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: I'm always a little nervous when I have authors like you who've had their own podcast. I I feel pressure to put on an extra good show.
1: Oh, you're fine. I mean, our podcast, the SF Squeecast was intentionally to be endlessly positive that was our mission statement was an unrelenting tide of positivity and uh, included things like the nightly question session where you had to ask you got asked can Seanan have a cookie and what have you done this week to make Paul Cornell proud of you mostly because we're all Americans so we like hearing a British man say in a sonorous voice oh well done Um, it is very difficult to be less professional than we were.
0: Okay, so the bar is very low. I feel much better. Thank you very much. And let me also just say there's a little rain tapping on the windowsill in case folks can hear that. I don't know if they can, but that's just one of the risks of recording in a home studio.
1: I love New York is the rainy place tonight. Seattle's fine. We're dry as a bone.
0: And Sean, I know your fan on your computer also periodically makes a little noise, so people may hear that as well. Middle Game centers around two people, Roger and Dodger, who are raised in different homes, but they turn out to be basically twins. Although, as one character, very much to her misfortune actually, discovers when she gives them a DNA test, the two of them are actually too similar to be fraternal twins, but they're not identical enough to actually be identical. Can you explain who and what Roger and Dodger are?
1: So, Roger and Dodger, I, I named them that in part so I could listen to serious review outlets have to say with a straight face, Roger and Dodger did the thing. And that has worked out very, very well for me. Uh, but in some ways, Middle Game is a modern Frankenstein. It is the story of an alchemist named James Reed who is attempting to take control of basic primal forces of the universe, including a Pythagorean concept called the Doctrine of Ethos was a philosophical idea first put forth by pythagoras you know before he went and got all deadified that states that between them language and mathematics control the universe and it's more often presented as music is the motive force behind the entirety of creation Uh, but in my case i broke it down into language and math as two separate individuals roger is the actual incarnate force of language and dodger is the incarnate force of mathematics And neither of them knows that for a long time, although we know almost from the first page uh, though we don't necessarily understand quite what that means until later into the book. And they've been separated so that they will develop as individuals rather than becoming a single composite entity, which is, of course, what the doctrine itself wants to be.
0: I had always thought alchemists were focused really on turning base metals into gold. But you have taught me, and I guess as you reference Frankenstein, of course, I guess if he was an alchemist as well, turning flesh inanimate flesh into living flesh so there's m- more to alchemy than than what i knew and there's also something called alkahest a universal solvent and that plays a role in middle game as well so i wondered how much research into this world of alchemy did you do i guess people once called themselves alchemists and actually wrote and did a lot in that category even though i guess it's it's considered a Is it a proto-science? I'm not exactly sure what you'd call it.
1: It's difficult to actually say what it was. It was very much believed by very intelligent people for a long, long time. And uh, alchemy was very dedicated to the idea that the classical elements were real, that sylphs controlled the air and salamanders controlled the fire and undines controlled the water and gnomes controlled the earth. And this was just a normal belief system, that there were spirits everywhere doing the things that they wanted to do. And sometimes, maybe, if you were correct in your incantations and your rituals, you could take over and control the choices that those spirits made. Most alchemists were dedicated either to the transmutation of base materials, the creation of the alkahest, the universal solvent, which could dissolve literally anything or the creation of the panacea, the universal cure. And that would be able to reverse all disease, all damage, and in some cases, some belief systems, even death. So part of why I consider Frankenstein to be an alchemical story is that you can look at the resurrection of the creature and say, well, that is someone successfully harnessing the panacea in a very, very stupid way.
0: The divide that you've described, and that's described in the book, between Dodger and Roger, with Dodger being a genius at math and Roger being a genius at words reminds me of how so often when people talk about math or writing, there's this dichotomy where people say, well, I'm good at math, but I can't really write. Or, well, I like literature, but yeah, I can't do math. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that the two in your story, and I guess in this Pythagorean view of the world they go together like they need each other you can't have one without the other to me it's almost like a message saying don't give up on your math homework you english lover or don't forget if you love math that you should still read books
1: yeah you know i love math i'm not enormously great at it but it makes me very very happy And uh, I was an English genius in school. And I don't feel like that's bragging because whether you're a childhood genius is how far ahead of where they expect you to be for your age group is. So most of us were childhood geniuses that kind of grew out of it. Uh, But I was an English prodigy. And so no one expected me to perform well in math. And you add that to the part where I was a girl. And this was the 1980s. And no one expected girls to do well in math. And when I tried to do math, when I tried to sign up for extra credit, any of that, I would get very heartily discouraged uh, to the point that after about the fifth grade, I stopped doing any voluntary mathematics. But I love structured poetry. It's one of my favorite things in the world. And I'll just write sonnets because I'm bored. Well, what is structured poetry but language that has gotten into bed with math? A sastina is a purely mathematical art form.
0: How does that work? How is a sestina structured?
1: Well, a sestina, you're going to hear a typing sound because I'm going to look up the exact rules. I know how to write one, but that doesn't mean I'm very good at uh, articulating the exact structure. A sestina consists of six stanzas, usually followed by a closing, through which a set order of words rotates. So each stanza is six lines in length. And each line ends with a specific end word. Stanza one, the end words go in the order one, two, three, four, five, six. Stanza two, they go in the order six, three, five, four, two. Stanza three is one, six, three, five, four. Stanza four is five, four, two, one, six. And you just keep doing that. And there is a mathematical formula to how they're rotating. But because of that, while you see those same six words, they're never going to be in the same place. Sestinas frequently do not rhyme. Because a sistina that rhymes, you'd almost have to pick terminal words that all have the same sound. And it can be very difficult if you lose track of the math. If you hold on to the math, you're fine. Uh, The beauty of the sistina is that it doesn't have to be a rhyming poem. It doesn't even have to be a great poem. It just has to follow the rules of the form.
0: Dodger and Roger's relationship is fascinating. The alchemist James Reed, a very creepy, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: alchemized individual himself, has structured their life. They're raised in separate homes, and yet they find a way to connect. I wonder how you went about structuring or thinking through the evolution of this relationship, where you have these two people who were born together, were designed to fit so snugly together, yet are forced to live apart and yet periodically connect and disconnect throughout their lives. It seems both psychologically and structurally complicated.
1: It was, I mean, this is the book I tell people took me 10 years to write because I had to get good enough to write it first. Uh, The flow charts for writing Middle Game were kind of a nightmare in and of themselves. But Roger and Dodger are very much defined by the fact that they are not complete characters without each other. And I just had to keep that in mind when trying to find their motivations. Roger, for all that his family life is very complicated, loves his family unquestioningly. He has always felt supported. He has always felt like at the end of the day, he could come home and they would take care of him because he is a language prodigy and he is a smart boy. Dodger is a math prodigy and a smart girl. And those are two things that tend to get you kicked in the teeth by the world over and over again So she's a lot more suspicious very early on and a lot more careful with how much she trusts anyone she does not forgive anytime one of them demonstrates an attribute the other pretty much picks up the opposite attribute in equal measure so as soon as dodger became logically that untrusting roger became a lot more willing to listen to people and that's partially just to keep them balanced and to keep them interesting because it's very difficult when you have two characters who are perfect matches to each other who trust each other implicitly and can literally read each other's minds to keep them interacting with anyone else. They don't want to.
0: Even though they're more powerful together, they realize their full potential when they're together. They also feel like in scenes where they're alone, like fully realized independent characters.
1: Thank you. That's what I wanted. I don't really have anything clever to say to that because that just means I did my job reasonably well.
0: Very good. Excellent. Okay, you don't have to you don't have to say any more. There's a story within a story in Middle Game. Mm-hmm. The alchemist who makes Roger and Dodger is carrying out the dream of his mentor, a woman named Asphodel Deborah Baker, who embedded her vision of two children taking over time and the world in a series of children's books that you quote in epigraphs between chapters. I understand that you've got a contract to write one of those very books under the pen name A. Deborah Baker for Tor. Can you tell me about the evolution from being a book within a book to being a book in its own right?
1: Well, in order to write the epigrams, I had to write the book. That was not really negotiable. So the book was already written when they asked if I thought I might like to publish it. The actual evolution of the story was kind of fun because when I first wrote Middle Game, the absolute first draft that no one will ever get to see, it was The Wizard of Oz. There was no Asphodel Baker. It was explicitly Baum who had encoded his alchemical primer into a series of children's books uh, because the first Wizard of Oz book is in the public domain. I could quote that. And uh, the, then my, my agent said that Oz was a little overplayed right now and they asked me to come up with something else. And so we wound up with the Deborah Baker books. And I think that that made the story stronger because it means you don't know how this ends. But you can absolutely look at Oz through an alchemical lens. It's not that difficult. So the Over the Woodward Wall books are an alchemist who has been denied a lot of things. Asphodel Baker was shut out of the Alchemical Congress because she was a woman. She was not allowed to have the full scope of her abilities respected by her peers. So she turned to this series of children's stories hoping that it would let her actually gain the respect and penetration that she needed to have in order to be the alchemist she had always been meant to become. And so I pretty much sat down and wrote the first book. It did not take terribly long because it is not a terribly long book. It is a children's book from in-universe about 1895 which is a very specific stylistic thing. And uh, it was a lot of fun to do. I'm very excited that it's going to be coming out. I've already finished the sequel, so I really hope people will buy it and thus Tor will let me publish the second one. But in my perfect world, there would be four of them. So it would actually be a real world up and under series that kids could read if they wanted to. And they each attach themselves to a specific element, which is why the first one is over the Woodward Wall. And then the second is along the Saltwise Sea. And so they'll just kind of rotate through the elements of the up and under a little bit at a time, which is a very alchemical thing to do.
0: You refer to Baum in the story, actually. And you mention other writers, too, like Mark Twain and Edgar Allan Poe. And the conceit is that they're all alchemists and they're all yes. dialoguing with Asphodel Baker and each other about alchemical principles, but in metaphor and through their writing.
1: By the time that Asphodel Baker and the other writers that I cite as having been alchemists came along, alchemy was a very discredited science. It no longer had the penetration or the respect that it used to. So they're trying to make sure that their teachings are preserved and that there's a chance that somebody will pick up one of their books and go, oh, wow, this is a genius idea. And they'll get to continue to be teachers Uh, because so many of the alchemists that we know of historically were philosophers. They sat and they thought about things professionally the idea that you would want your specific school of alchemical thought to endure And you would want to be known as a great teacher is baked into the way that the alchemical congress and the other alchemists in this universe work
0: This is an important question. Are there secret instructions for taking over the world embedded in middle game?
1: Oh, probably
0: We'll just have to figure it out. I guess
1: they wouldn't be a secret if I said them on a podcast
0: This is true. This is true. I just wanted a scoop, you know, another reason for people to come and listen and swear loyalty to this podcast.
1: I mean, here's a scoop for you. I am the vanguard of an invading species of alien plant people en route to destroy your puny planet.
0: Perfect. Beautiful. That's the headline. Thank you. There you go. What about the concept of middle? I might be going down a dark uh, alley or what is it? An alley without an exit. But the title of the book is Middle Game. Uh Roger's Last name is Middleton. Yes. Also, at one point, one of the characters describes alchemy as the middle ground between magic and science. Yes. And then there was one more thing, and maybe this is stretching it, but the lab where the kids, Roger and Dodger, are grown, born, is in Ohio, which is quintessentially middle America. So is the idea of middle important to the story or am I just getting caught up in something that is uh, that isn't really there?
1: I think that you're getting a jump on the college students who will be analyzing my work in 50 years when I'm dead and they can't ask me directly anymore. Uh, The concept of middles is kind of important because for most of the book, Roger and Dodger are the middle ground between humanity and the gods. You know, they're kind of stuck in this in-between place where they can pull off things that humans can't, but they're not divine. Not yet. Uh, The tagline of the book is Godhood is achievable. Pray that it isn't achieved. And the story is all about them trying to achieve it because it's that or die, uh, which is a messy, messy place to stand. But it is not as centered on middles as you might think. I was a bit miffed that we had announced the title and then they finally went, ooh, Avengers Endgame is coming. Like, God damn it, Marvel.
0: Frustrating. A little bit. I also thought perhaps the book is focused on the middle of their story. I guess all books are in a way, but there is this sense that they are trying to work out a problem as they try to figure out how to harness their powers and manifest them. So they're constantly in this middle place where they make mistakes and have to try to do them again. So I thought that was a very middle place to be.
1: That is a very middle place to be. And that's a good thing, because as you say, most books take place in the middle. If you start at the very beginning, frequently you have to kind of slog through a whole lot of boring shit. And if you start at the end, you run out of story very quickly.
0: You mentioned before, and you also mentioned it in the acknowledgments, that it took you a long time to write this book, because it was the book, in your acknowledgments you say, it was the book I didn't yet have the necessary skill to write. Yes. What skills do you think... You were missing, and how have you evolved over the years as a writer?
1: Well, I think that anything anything you do over and over again, you're going to inherently get better at. You have to. Practice makes perfect is not necessarily true, but practice makes better than you were before you practiced. I think is an absolute fact. Uh, middle game took ten years of writing, figuring out how to juggle multiple storylines, figuring out how to juggle subtleties, figuring out how to put things in a non-linear line you know middle game is not the most linear of books it is third person present te- tense non-linear my agent was delighted when i said i was handing it to her and it's two hundred thousand words long i'm pretty sure i am the name of her ulcer you can absolutely read my earlier work and see how it leads to middle game uh, it's not like it's a book by a completely new person it's not like i'm never going to manage anything of that type again But it was very much a level up book for me.
0: But obviously you enjoyed it or you wouldn't have stuck with it all these years.
1: Well, I enjoyed the concept, which is why I stuck with it for years. The book itself, once you reach a certain level in your career, it is very uncommon to write a book that you have not sold already. You're mostly selling books off of pitches. And a pitch can be between 4 and 16 pages long. I felt like I had finally reached the point where I was good enough to write middle game, which again is a book I had been carrying around in my heart for years at that point, And it was the aspiration. If I do this, if I improve this skill, I will be good enough to write middle game. Oh, I guess I'm not quite good enough yet. I'd better do this other thing and improve this other skill, And maybe now I'll be good enough to write middle game. Well, I finally said, I think I'm good enough to write middle game. I think I'm ready for this story that has wanted to be told, but I wasn't prepared to tell. So I wrote a pitch and gave it to my agent and it was four pages long and consider the book middle game and how convoluted it is and ask yourself how much sense did a four page summation of that book really make. And if your answer is not very much, you're pretty close to the money. So I gave my agent this four page summary and her response was, I don't even know what you're trying to do here. This doesn't make any sense at all. You can't write this book. So I kind of had a little temper tantrum, went home and wrote the book in a fit of pique. From beginning to end, middle game took six weeks to finish. But that was after 10 years of thinking about it.
0: Six weeks. And how much sleep did you get during those six weeks?
1: Not much. Sleep was less important than being right, which is so often the story of my life.
0: So it was to make a point and you made your point because I did. it got published and it's doing very, very well. In fact, it is a finalist in the Goodreads Reader's Choice competition.
1: I've been nominated for that before, but I've never won. So I actually really do hope that I win this year. Um, awards don't change much of anything, but they're still very exciting. And anyone who tells you that it's an honor just to be nominated has never lost.
0: But you have won also a number of awards, which is wonderful, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, it's delightful, although it gives my cats more things to knock over. Uh, They are very, very proud of the fact that they can knock over almost anything. And they demonstrate on a fairly regular basis that they can knock over almost anything.
0: Music is a big part of your life. You record filk music. Yes. And and you have a beautiful voice. Oh, thank you. Maybe you could tell people in case they don't know what filk is and maybe talk about how it is part of your creative process, how it balances or doesn't or works with your writing and your other creative endeavors.
1: Well, filk is the folk music of science fiction and fantasy. It started from a typo. Uh, someone was having an act convention folk sing in their hotel room, and it got written as filk. And the filk community, which is very fond of changing the lyrics to things to make them science fictiony, went, yes, that's us. And they kind of seized on that as a moniker. At this point, it's a large enough s- sub-community of fandom that we have multiple conventions in multiple countries around the world every year. We have our own filk Hugos, which are the Pegasus Awards. And I've won multiple, Hugo- multiple filk Hugos. I've won multiple Pegasuses. Uh, Pegasi, and they are charming, and I have them in a display case in my living room. Filk does not necessarily inform my day-to-day process, although I listen to music constantly. I can't write if I don't have iTunes going, but it does inform my understanding of things. You know, back to structured poetry, music is structured poetry that you sing because scansion is the art of getting the same number of syllables per line and making sure that everything fits together. And uh, is, is perfectly in tune with the things around it. And even if you don't necessarily know the word scansion, you know what it is when you hear it. When a song is off, when something doesn't fit the meter, you can feel it. It's almost instinctive to anyone that comes from a musical culture. Middle Game itself started out partially as a filk song uh, by a woman named Dr. Mary Kroll, who is credited in the acknowledgements of, uh, of the book who wrote a song called the doctrine of ethos that explains the basic principle. And that's on her album, courting my muse, which is available for sale now. And it just breaks down. The doctrine of ethos says music says music's a force, a microcosm of creation at its source. And it's absolutely lovely. And it's a quick way to get a good grasp of Pythagorean philosophy, which I think everyone should have a decent grasp of Pythagorean philosophy. It makes watching the good place easier.
0: And what's your secret to being so productive? I mean, you've written 36 books. You had two books come out this year. You wrote middle game in six weeks, as you said. So fit of peak. in a fit of fit of peak, a fit of peak week, six peak weeks. Mm-hmm. So how does that work for you? What's your what's your process?
1: I sit down. I write. Um, I don't have children, which is a choice I made and means that it's a lot easier for me to shut everything out. I have cats, and they are fully capable of feeding themselves as long as I keep kibble in the bowl and let them go about their business. You know, if you want to be that kind of productive, which is not necessarily something I recommend. I enjoy being me, but it's not for everyone. Um, You have to make choices that will narrow your life down to the things that you want it to contain. And if you're somebody that wants to have more of a social life than I do or wants to have more of a family life than I do, you need to make different choices. Also, at this point, I am functionally, uh, which is, is mostly funny if you can see me, but I'm functionally an Olympic athlete. It's just that my sport is novel writing. So I'm in training every single day to be able to start and finish the next book in a timely fashion. And I'm doing this while writing comic scripts for Marvel and while Doing you know short stories for various anthologies and patreon But part of it is that I am constantly in training. I get up in the morning. I sit down at my computer I start working. I don't really move very much until I've made word count for the day
0: And what's your word count?
1: I don't disclose that we live in the era of social media I know how arrogant that sounds but we live in the era of social media and People are constantly comparing themselves to each other and it really does not matter you know, if you write a hundred words a day and they're good words, you will have a novel at the end of a year. But back when I did actually say this is what my word count is, I would have people going on Twitter and on Facebook going, I'm never going to be a success. Sean and McGuire writes five times the words I do in a single day. And that just made me feel bad. I am not a club for people to hit themselves with.
0: That makes sense. It seems human nature to do that, <laughs> compare oneself to someone else. But people should never do that. Yeah. I don't know if I have anything else. I went through all my questions. You've floored me with concise, juicy answers.
1: The cats have not made an appearance tonight, which is actually fairly unusual for them. Um, I think you weren't recording yet, but if you heard a sound like this, that was me trying to get my youngest cat to jump up on me, because if she's jumped up on me, she's not howling for my attention.
0: Yeah, sometimes my cats, uh, one of them anyway, sits on my lap. I don't know where he is right now, but when I record a podcast and it keeps him out of the way.
1: They're doing important cat things. But, you know, if we haven't started yet, I will try to lure Elsie up onto me because it makes things a little bit easier.
0: Do you want to talk about your next, you know, what you're working on now?
1: Well, next, I'm working on the next October day book right now, which is my flagship series. And book 14 is going to come out in September of 2020. And that's a little terrifying to me. Like, I'm still not actually sure how I have accomplished getting a 14-book urban fantasy series off the ground, especially since there's no sex. So that is a little counter to what people expect from a long-running urban fantasy series. Uh, But I love it very much, and I'm really desperately hoping that I can get to the end. There is an end. I always like to know where I'm going, I just don't know how long it's gonna take me to get there. And uh, that ending is probably a lot of books away from where we're standing right now, so.
0: And did you outline the story from beginning to end when you wrote the first book?
1: I generally take an approach that's a little bit more like going to Disneyland. You get there and you know when the park opens and you know when the park closes and you know the things you absolutely have to do during the day, but you don't know every single beat in that middle. Um, So I started out knowing the beginning and knowing how the series ends, and I've just sort of chased organic rabbits since then. So something will happen and the characters will react to it, and that will open six or seven new doors for things to happen through.
0: Thank you so much for coming on New Books in Science Fiction.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: I've had the lucky fortune to be talking to Shannon McGuire about her novel, Middle Game, which came out in May of 2019 from Tor. You've been listening to new books in science fiction. Please subscribe if you don't. And if you like the show, feel free to leave some words of support in the review section.
1: We like reviews.
0: Yes, we do. Yay. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. Our Scholarly editor-in-chief and also the founder of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. Our co-editor is Leanne, keeps the trains running on time, Wilson. And I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. Find me at robwolf.net and on the Twitter machine at robwolfbooks. Wishing you a happy new year. May your 2020 be filled with many, many wonderful books.